Welcome to the Photo Banter Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Gagne, and on today's podcast, I speak with photographer Glenn E. Friedman. Glenn E. Friedman got his start in photography, photographing the legendary Dogtown skate crew with skaters such as Jay Adams and Tony Alva, to name a few. Glenn is also well known for his photographs of punk rock groups such as Fugazi, Minor Threat, Suicidal Tendencies, and Bad Brains. Beyond Glenn's photographs of skateboarding and punk rock culture, Glenn is well known for his photographs of legendary hip-hop artists such as the Beastie Boys, Run DMC, LL Cool J, and Public Enemy to name a few. Glenn's work has been published and exhibited extensively, and he has published several books of his work including titles such as My Rules, Fuck You Heroes, Together Forever, and The Idealist to name a few. Glenn is someone whose work I grew up looking at as a young skateboarder, and I've always appreciated his enthusiasm and passion he brings to his work. So I was really excited to get a chance to speak with him about his journey with photography. So I hope you enjoy, and thanks so much for listening. I now welcome on Glenn E. Friedman. Uh, Glenn, excited to talk to you. Been following your work for years. Big fan. And uh, but I guess uh, last week's been crazy uh, with the election and everything. I guess, like, where's your mindset at? Because I know anybody follows you on social media. Uh, you don't hold back your opinions and you're very politically involved. Uh, I guess, like, what's uh, where's your mind at right now with the new president and everything? Well, the new, you know, we have a president elect that's not a fascist dictator that's been in the political game for a long time. Yeah. Uh, he was probably my last choice out of all the Democratic nominees. Yeah. But I am really, really happy to get rid of the piece of shit that's in the White House now. Yeah. Uh, I don't just say that from watching my TV. I've met him in person. I've actually had words with uh, Dump. Yeah. You know, back in 1999, we were sitting together at a, at a, at a place with some friends and I talked to him for a minute. Um, you know, and he's a, he's quite a character. He should never have been in that position ever. It was a big mistake. And, uh, people who, uh, you know, who are upset about the election and feel bad about his losing, uh, unfortunately they just don't know that they've been conned. Yeah. You know, he's a, he's a con man and he tricked them to mm -hmm. believing that he would do anything. Yep. He, you know, he said, you know, you know, when he got elected, we thought, well, you know, I got a young kid. I had to convince him that it wasn't the end of the world because he said he was going to rebuild the infrastructure and give people jobs. Mm -hmm. He never did that, of course. Unfortunately, we hoped that he would. Said he'd give us a new health care plan that would be better and cheaper than what we already have. Not even an inch towards that. And it's been four years, not even a mention of it. So he's completely full of shit. He's always been full of shit. Anyone who lives in New York knows he's been full of shit the whole time. And I feel sorry for people who don't understand that the guy was a con man and he tricked them yeah. and he hoodwinked them and i feel bad for those people really i do and i feel bad for the country because all he did was deregulate a lot of industries that hurt families and hurt individuals and hurt the environment and if you really don't understand that and you think that he's keeping your taxes low and something like that you just really don't know what the fuck is going on and you want to call me a commie or a yeah. Uh, pinko or a marxist or whatever um i'd rather be that than live under a uh, fascist yeah. i think the problem with this country is that most people they don't know the difference between a fascist and a socialist mm -hmm. and we're not near a socialist country at all although if you like your social security if you like your public schools if you like your public parks if you like your traffic lights if you the like roads. the fire department yeah these are all social ideals yeah. socialism just means 
for people, yeah. for life, yeah. you know, as opposed to capitalist is for capital, for money. Yeah. What should, what is a better way to ruin, to, to, to rule or to guide your ideals for a society? Do you want to base it on money or do you want to base it on social ideals? Mm -hmm. You know, I think that's the big thing that's going to have to happen now is, is an education of the public because people, you know, they, they say, if you don't remember your history, you're damned to repeat it. And we came really close with Dump, you know, um, he, 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 he was a wannabe dictator, you know, much like Hitler. He wasn't a smart man. Neither was Hitler. People say in hindsight, oh, he was a genius and how he devised this plan. He wasn't a genius. He was a fucking idiot at the same time that Dump is, you know, they just were men who knew how to con people and blame other people for their problems and try and build themselves up. I mean, it's the clear, the clearest, you know, case of narcissism that as an example of that, and all politicians are narcissists to some degree to think that Definitely. they can rule and lead other yeah, yeah, yeah. people. But totally. this guy was an extreme and um, and everyone was celebrating on the streets, as you noted in our talk before, mm -hmm. you know, before we got on the air here. Yeah. Um, and it was very nice to see everyone happy. I have to say being I've been in New York since January, almost a year now without leaving the city. I haven't been anywhere at all. I've been, you know, and I was in lockdown like everyone else. And I was doing podcasts and yeah. live streams on the Instagram and stuff like that. And it's been it was OK in the beginning, but then. You know, but I think people were really depressed because they, you know, because the political situation in the world and they see this guy continually lying. And for people who don't believe that their hero, if he was their hero, dump, was not continually lying. Yeah. I feel bad for them. They're just so sadly misinformed. I mean, you know, the, the, the mainstream media definitely has its faults, but it but it's not lies all the time you know no. and he lies all the time whenever something doesn't go his way all he would do was lie and well you know, every, everyone very well for, let me just say he learned yeah. very well from ronald reagan you repeat the lie often enough yeah. and it becomes truth you know people believe it and that's all he did he's a really corny really shitty con man and everyone who knows him in new york, in new york since he started in business here all knows he's a con man yeah. you know and only people the only people who voted for him are either ignorant or greedy mm -hmm. or racist. Yep. You know, and it's really, really sad how racist this country has, you know, how it, you know, it happened when Reagan came into office too. You know, they made it okay to be a racist again for a little while. And and you just see that come out of people, the hate that people have. And it's only out of that's ignorance too. People are racist and prejudiced because they don't know people of other races or they've exactly. had bad one or two bad experiences with people with other races or they read some inflammatory news or fox news tries to scare them into doing something i mean fox in my opinion you know the first amendment is one thing but you know to scare people to death and to lie continually if anything is fake news it's fox news and that's mm -hmm. really obvious to anyone with a fucking brain mm -hmm. and i am not that smart of a guy but unfortunately i'm smarter than most people yeah. out there and that's uh, that's unfortunate because I don't want to be the smartest guy. I don't. I, I'm I'm an artist. I don't. You know, I'm not that guy. But God darn it, man, it's it's kind of incredible how fucking stupid people are. And I didn't believe. You know, Bill Maher always used to say that half the country is a bunch of idiots, and I didn't believe that. I'm an idealist. Yep. I believe in people, and I believe in the good of people, and I believe that most people are good. But boy, during this presidency, we saw a lot of fucking ugly coming out of people. And, oh, yeah. and it just, it, it, it's just kind of remarkable to me how, you know, I mean, I like that one meme that you would read, you know, 
and not all Trump supporters are racist. They mm -hmm. aren't all racist. I know some Trump supporters and I think they're fucking idiots, but I know them and they're friends and they're still my friends. But not all Trump supporters are racist, but all racists are Trump supporters. True, true. That fucking tells you something. That tells you something. And what? you know what? I don't want to have to speak about his name ever again. I hope none of us do. He needs yeah. to go to jail for yeah. all his fucking crimes. You know, they talked about locking up Hillary on all this fake bullshit. This guy's got real fucking crimes. You talk about lock him up. Boy, this whole country was chanting lock him up this weekend when we, when, when you know, the Democrats won the election. Yeah. And, you know, and I also made it a big deal. You know, a lot of people think they're too cool to vote or they, they want to tear down the system by not participating in it and all that stuff. Fuck you. You're an elitist. People mm -hmm. suffer. People, more people would suffer under one administration than another, right? And I voted for Ralph Nader every time he ran for president because I love Ralph Nader and he's done a lot of good for this country. But the last time he ran against Obama's first term, mm -hmm. and Obama was not my first choice. He is a conservative to me. The way these people talk about, you know, Barack Obama was a socialist or a communist. I wish he was that. How's that? Yeah. I wish he was that because he wasn't. He is a neoliberal, which is not even a liberal, by the way, people. He was a neoliberal, which is someone who cares more about business. Okay. And that is a very Republican thing. They call it in, in Europe, they look at Ronald Reagan was a neoliberal. Okay. They put people over profits and they think that business is the way to solve all our problems. I believe in people. I don't believe that business could solve all of our problems. I believe in the good of man and in humans. And we have the answers. The business doesn't, okay? We need to get money out of politics. So it's not all about who raises the most money. We need to get people to believe in people again, not just fucking profits. But it's such a desperate situation in this capitalist system that people are led to believe things that are false, that just help big corporations make more money and yeah. hurt human life on this planet. I mean, who wouldn't be for a Green New Deal? If you actually listen to what it is, don't just get scared by Fox News and them saying it's, you know, Marxist AOC and all this stuff. First of all, AOC is not a Marxist. She is a social Democrat, which has a very long, very healthy tradition in this world and in the United States. But we're so scared since McCarthyism, since any of us were born, you know, from about Marxism and communism and, and socialism, that people just, you know, it's ridiculous. It's just people need to be educated that's all they really need and you know we need to care about each other and if you hear a politician saying that they care about people mm -hmm. and they want to help people and something about that scares you yeah something's fucking wrong with you well the i mean thing that because you know they don't trust well yeah there is a lack of trust and you know who built that up these fucking you want to talk about fucking fake media those people do it because they want to control your life and they want to scare you and continue to watch you know, their news programs that are, you know, just make, they're making money off of you. You're being hoodwinked again. You're being lied to again by that fucking network because they want to control you and they want your money. And that's well, what it is. Well, the scary thing now is, is like everyone, everything's a conspiracy now because like, I mean, I have family members, like I don't really talk to them too much anymore just because they're like diehard Trumpers and it's crazy, but they literally get their news from Facebook and it's like, they believe anything that's on there. And they're, like you said, they, there's no like sources it's just they if it's online they believe it and it's like i feel more not every, everything's just, it's like everything's a conspiracy like donald trump i was just on the news last night they were talking about 
he's going back on the road and he's going to start doing rallies again to basically like it's all about confusing people and mixing yeah. people up to yeah. the point where they don't trust anything except yeah. for what's already in line with whatever little ideas they may have in their heads you know like like they found a way to even get into a lot of very open-minded you know peaceful thinking people they got you know they they know that a lot of people in the more uh, what would you call it I, I wouldn't say liberal but you know like people who you know god what, what's the proper word there but you know holistic medicine and stuff like that they got a lot of those people to get into this to get away from thinking because they they latched into something on them. Like, yeah. you know, people who are against vaccines, which I understand that, yeah. but I, I'm not an anti-vaxxer, but I do think that we get over-vaccinated. And there's re the reasons I don't believe in a lot of the vaccines for everybody is because I've read the materials from the CDC. Yeah. And if you read the back, when my kid was about to get vaccinated, if you read the pamphlets, just like when you open up a bottle of aspirin and there's a little piece of paper in there that says all the side effects, right? I read the side effects on the vaccines yep. and backs and, and people who make vaccines do have they're they're immune to any court cases. The, 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 the government has made it so you can't sue them mm -hmm. because they're a business and you can't sue them. Just like you can't make any disparaging remarks anymore about the animal food industry, you know, yeah. which is insane. It's yeah. pure business running shit, getting rid of regulations, not having to tell the truth. So anyways, back to the vaccine thing, I read the papers from the CDC, which I do trust, by the way, and for the most part, and they've made mistakes and every governmental agency does make mistakes. If you don't, if you wanna be an anarchist and you don't wanna to listen to government, go off in the countryside and make your own little community. You could do that. Go live on a farm, grow your own food, do whatever you want. You can do that. I live in New York City. I live in a major metropolitan area. We yep. need government here. OK, yep. and there's no fucking anarchist who's going to tell you that you can operate a city like this without any kind of control. You can't. You need to. You need you have sewage systems. You have, you know, health care. People, people don't realize that the, the food you eat, the, the government's playing a role in your life on a day to day basis. And a lot of people probably don't even realize it. Like the food you're buying at the grocery store, whatever, like if they didn't have like the FDA, like companies would do whatever the fuck they wanted obviously they're still like crazy farming shit and they're using chemicals for sure but they're they're still overseeing some of it and there's like some regulation safety so that like the general public can like safely eat food and like there's tons of other things you know yeah yeah i mean but and but when you have an administration particularly republican administrations and even obama administration you know they've gotten rid of a lot of those safety measures yep. for business sake and to save money the yep. fact is is that you know I don't understand how people don't get, you know, Medicare for all. Yeah. It's like, it, it need, it, I don't know how stupid they are that they think it's going to, you know, tax them to hell. All they have to say is that like, okay, for a person who makes, let's say $50,000 a year, mm -hmm. right? Instead of you're going to, your taxes are going to go up. How about this? Your taxes are going to go up. They're going to go up $2,500, maybe $3,000 a year. Mm -hmm. But how much medical bills are you going to save? $15,000, you won't have to pay in medical bills. Yeah. So is that not a fair trade? 3,000 no tax, uh, higher taxes, but now you have to don't, you can go to a hospital and not have to worry. Yeah. They're gonna take care of you until you're healthy again. End of fucking story. And you don't have to pay $15,000, whether it's your employer has to take it out of the insurance plan 
or whether it's you paying out of your pocket, a self-employed person, my insurance is insane and it covers nothing. Yeah, that's, my, that's like a real issue. Like same with me, because I'm like like you, I'm an independent contractor and I pay for my insurance, but it's not that good. And I basically, I, I, I avoid going to the fucking doctor because every interaction I have with my healthcare provider is a fucking nightmare. Like I, I got hurt on the job like a year ago, had to get like six stitches. No joke. I had to argue between the hospital and the healthcare provider for eight fucking months to get them to pay the fucking like, Three thousand. It was a th- it was like three thousand dollars to go to like the ER to get like six stitches, and it was just like, and like you said, like if people had healthcare and they weren't afraid to go to the doctor because they're gonna go into fucking debt and like and all this shit, it's like oh we're gonna have a healthier society, so you could go to the doctor every year and get checkups and not have to worry about getting like all these diseases and cancer and all this type of shit. It's just like doesn't make any fucking sense. It's like if you had a healthy society, we all we don't prosper. Want higher taxes. We don't want higher taxes. We don't want higher taxes. It's all they yeah. think about. Yeah. And it's like, you know, taxes used to be a lot more for a lot of people and, and certainly for the wealthy people in this country. Mm-hmm. They're paying, they are not paying their fair share because those people would not be so wealthy if it wasn't for the workers. Yeah. Okay. So they, it is their obligation to pay more and to pay a bigger share, not mm-hmm. the same share. Who the fuck deserves to make a hundred million dollars or more in a year? Who deserves to make more than a million dollars in a year? I don't care how fucking great you are. It's like, okay. You know, but they're not even talking about that. You know, people like Bernie were talking about taxing people who make like five million dollars a year or more higher. Yeah. Yep. Why the fuck do you care about that if you're earning thirty thousand dollars, eighty thousand dollars, one hundred and twenty thousand dollars a year? Why do you give a shit if they're fucking taxed because you think you're going to be one of those people earning five million dollars yep. a year or more? You know, that's just insane. You know, what they've been taught yeah. from fucking Fox News, because those people are protecting their own paychecks. You, you got that's you, why they're convincing you that you need to do it and your taxes are going to go up. Your taxes aren't going to go up. Do you know what? My taxes, and I do not, I am not in a high tax bracket at all. I am a very middle class wage earner, and my taxes have gone up yeah. under Trump. More yeah. than any other time in my life, I'm paying higher taxes than ever. How the fuck is that? I'm a middle class wage earner and how does that happen that's fucking insane so fuck him <laughs> fuck him and the horse he came in on and fuck fucking mitch mcconnell and lindsey graham those pieces of shit yeah. they got no integrity they got nothing all they do is hate black people yeah. they're fucking racist pieces of shit and they don't care they didn't give obama a fuck. and obama is conservative as far as i'm concerned he was more conservative than ronald reagan they don't fucking realize that he did a couple of social programs to help some people, but business-wise, he did things, as did Bill Clinton, that are more conservative than Ronald Reagan couldn't get away with the shit that they were doing for businesses, the pro-business stuff. So those guys are just fucking greedy. They're just pushing and pushing and pushing yeah. to get everything they can, to have no regulation. Really, they want a libertarian, liaison-fair fucking economy where the fucking, it's social Darwinism, you know, mm-hmm. where fucking only the most, the strongest survive and the rest go down. They want like a fucking caste system where you got fucking the workers and the elite and that's it. And if you fucking continue voting for fucking Republicans, that's what you're going to get. You're going to be permanently lower classes, no middle class and a, and a small elite upper class. And it's like you're a fucking you really don't know what the fuck you're talking about. And you want to listen to all these people tell you to vote for Trump and Trump is the greatest and whatever else. You know, he's gone now. Fuck him and his family. They're all a bunch of fucking lying pieces of shit. That's all they ever did was lie every fucking day. And if you don't believe that and you think the mainstream media, you know, you're just a you've been conned. Okay, we will welcome you back into reality. But you have been conned and you got to do some real research and and some real soul searching 
to understand why did I support this piece of shit? Yeah. Why did I do it? Did I get conned? Yeah. Am I really that dumb or am mm. I really that racist or am mm. I really that greedy? That's what you need to ask yourself because if you supported him, you're one of those things. Seven, seven, 70 million and, people. Know, and, 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 you know, it's really sad. It's just sad. And, you know, and I, I, out of those 70 million, I'm sure maybe 2 million knew exactly, maybe more, maybe half of them knew exactly what they were doing. They're racist or they're just greedy. Yeah. Right. And the other half are just fucking ignorant motherfuckers. And you could just tell by when they get interviewed, by when people talk to them, when they, they ask them questions, the most basic questions about anything, and they really don't have any idea what they're talking about. And that is sad. Yeah. That is really sad because they're just being conned and they're being tricked and they're just being pushed down a road that they don't know. It's against their own best interests. How do they not get it? It's a lack of education. And that's partially to blame the Republicans too, because they've been destroying the public schools since the 1970s, because people in the suburbs wanted to pay less taxes and send their kids to their own private schools. And so they don't care about the public schools. And that's part of the reason people are so stupid. But more than that, Fox News, they play on people's fears. Mm. Let me tell you something. You have never seen a fucking anti-fascist, other than a World War II, right, have a gun in this country. Yeah. Anti-fascists punch fascists in the face. And that's a good thing as far as I'm concerned. But they're not shooting anybody. They're not starting an armed insurrection against anybody. They're trying to wake people up to see that fascism is not a good thing, people. And if you can't get that and, you, and they keep demonizing anti-fascists, Americans were the biggest anti-fascists on the planet. And that's why Hitler was taken down, mm. right? Because we were anti-fascists. If you don't get that, you don't, you know, you're not educated. And it's, yeah, it was crazy. And they tell them they're going to, and they say that Black Lives Matter is going to go and burn down, that they have a, a you know, a, um, you know, that their agenda, they didn't even call it their agenda. They, they said their manifesto. They're just using that language. There is no Black Lives Matter manifesto. If you go to their own website and you read what they want to do, they don't call it a manifesto, but the right wing uses that language because it scares people and makes them think of communism and Marxism. And they didn't, no one ever said who was a part of Black Lives Matter that if we don't get what we want, we're going to burn down the suburbs. It's a stupid, and people in my own family had told me that they heard that. I'm like, yeah, you hear from Fox News and you hear from Donald Trump. They're just trying to scare you. It's yeah. fucking crazy how people are so fucking scared that they just don't get it. It's like, you know, and again, I, you know, yeah. I, I'm just blown away by the ignorance in this country and the greed. The greed and the ignorance. The racism, it's, I can't even understand that. But the greed and, and, and the ignorance is just mind-boggling. I didn't realize it was that bad. And the craziest part is like all these like areas, a lot of areas that support them, like, they're like living in poverty. It's like, why are you supporting this guy? He doesn't give a fuck about you. Your, your life hasn't changed in the last four years. So it's like, there's nothing that, like you don't have access to healthcare. You don't, it's like crazy. <laughs> like that's what other brainwashed. They're just totally brainwashed and it's just sad. And yeah. I mean, I have to, you know, I, I've been hovering, you know, my number on my uh, Instagram usually, you know, it goes up quite a bit and, um, and it's been going, it went down, you know, quite a bit in the last, you know, not quite a bit, less than one tenth of a percent. But I mean, it's just surprising to see how many people I have to delete because they start spouting some stupid shit on there that's just like totally wrong, totally misguided, and usually hateful. 
will you will you engage with them i i sometimes engage with people and sometimes i don't yeah and and actually the few times i have engaged with some people um when i i I mean i assess the situation and there's a couple people i've engaged with and they'll be like oh okay i get it and i'm actually surprised that they back down and that they get it sometimes they're surprised that i even reply to them but I want to help people. That's my goal in this world is to help people. Yeah. You know, and to inspire people to great things and to goodness and to seeing, you know, to making the world a better place, you know. Mm. And so I do engage sometimes, but oftentimes I don't. When someone is just using, you know, their false facts and yeah. whatever else and, and just and just spewing hate and negativity and you know, and trying to bring up, you know, bad stuff about, you know, the the uh, candidates um, look like we all know, you know, I mean, everyone, you know, no one is our, our least, you know, is our last choice, you know, mm-hmm. but it doesn't matter. You do whatever you have to do for less people to suffer yep. and to get rid of fascism, mm-hmm. quite honestly, because this guy wanted to be a dictator and, 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 and he's just such an idiot. He said, and you think, Oh, people are like, well, he's not that dumb. He got where he is. Well, he got there by people surrounding him and just by people being, you know, desperate. It's people's desperation that has gotten him the success that he had because they're just scared. And that's yeah, what people are, yeah, people, people they are scare people. You understand that's what Fox News does. And that's what a lot of, you know, a lot of media is based on scaring people because they want to keep them enthralled and excited and interested. Um, you know, you got to be careful of that stuff. And all the media is, is all, left and right wing is guilty of that. But it is a false equivalency to compare the lies of the right to the, you know, excitement of the left. You know, the left sometimes goes a little overboard, you know, in the media, I'm saying, in, in, the, in the TV media, you know, they, they get a little uh, sensationalistic sometimes, but they're not straight up lying to you. Mm-hmm. And they're not trying to, you know, and, and so th- there's a difference. I personally watch less than, you know, one hour of news coverage a month. What What do you, what, I was interested in getting your, your opinion with social media, because in the grand scheme of things, social media is still a very new thing. It's a very new technology. And the argument is now, because we've seen it, like Twitter is starting to censor certain people, Facebook, not as much. They seem like they kind of let stuff fly a little bit more. Like, what role do you think should the government be involved in, like, regulating these social media platforms? And, like, what role? Because these platforms, it's where billions of people, like, go on these things daily. And they get that's where they get their news from. Probably a lot of times more people get their news from social media than they do from, like, some traditional news channel. Like, how do you kind of view this, the censorship aspect of it? Um. Well, there used to be a time when you were against censorship, when everyone was against censorship. Mm-hmm. But just like the First Amendment, you know, it says, you know, you're free to say whatever you want to say until it endangers people's lives. Yeah. You can't endanger people. And that's what they're doing. And mm-hmm. I quit Facebook when they said that they wouldn't, that they would allow political advertisements, even if they contained falsehoods, lies. And when they said that and they wouldn't back down from that, I quit. Yeah. That's it. And I, I'm, I don't miss it at all. Honestly, I used Facebook. I didn't use it for my photography. I used Facebook just to be around my, you know, hundred friends that I had on there and share pictures of our kids mm-hmm. and say hello and see how people are doing. You know, that's what I used Facebook for. Yeah. But people obviously, and especially during COVID, I think that the, a lot of the country got really fucked up. I think that Trump would have even lost by more if we didn't have COVID 
people, I mean, probably not because people are just you know, not that smart, but I think that people, you know, are, you know, were locked in their homes and they were watching YouTube way more often than they usually do. They were watching their, you know, social media way more often than they normally do because they're working from home and they're stuck in their houses and they, and no one could explain this COVID thing to a lot of people. Some yeah. people, some of us understand and, and yep. what it was and, and how it's possible and how this has been predicted for a long time. And, and, but other people just, you know, they don't want to believe it. So they listen to videos from charlatans who all they do is sell books after you watch them or sell you products of some kind. They all say, Oh, I'm, I'm being taken down. My truth is so big that we're being, you know, censored and they don't like us telling the truth. They're all, they're a bunch of fucking charlatans. They're selling their books to you or they're selling some wares or even their own popularity. And it's, just, and it's just fucking foul, you know? It's just sad and it's just, that's how, you know, that's just, you know, people trying to survive in a capitalist economy. I get it, it's not mm -hmm. easy, it's hard. But the way people shamelessly lie and cheat and steal and, and, and you know, trick people yeah. The con is in full effect in 2020, and it has been for a long time, but, but with people locked in their homes, people are much more desperate, and people are preying on desperate people and their ideas, and it just, it's just really sad to me, and it's really unfortunate, and some of it is very, you know, if you're at home for, you know, three months, and, or you, and you're out of work, you, you know, you're desperate, you know? I think fuck Facebook, fuck Twitter, yep. you know, and, and even though Instagram is owned by those things, Instagram, I feel as though it's not as easy to get across the lies unless you follow the people, not as much as getting into your feed. Then, I mean, I guess it depends. I mean, I follow less than 200 people. You know, I know people follow a thousand people. So I actually see, and you know, and there's people I don't know that I follow. Sure. But I, you know, I'm, I'm an intense editor and I don't look at it all the time. You know, I'm yeah. amazed when I post something and it, you know, within seconds, people I know are liking it or making comments. I'm like, geez, are they on this all day long? It's just incredible. <laughs> um, but I think that Instagram, you know, and I was late to Instagram. I didn't want to get on it for a long time because I couldn't imagine you could see my work. This sure, yeah, <laughs> now that you could zoom in on it and stuff, it's right when I got on this, right when you were able to zoom in and mm -hmm. people out of, you know, Pilgrim Surf Shop, you know, out there in uh, Brooklyn, you know, really finally got me to do it. I mean, they tried getting me to do it at my show in London. You know, they, that's when Instagram was blowing up in 2014. Like everyone was there doing stuff. And, and um, I just didn't, you know, I just, I thought, I thought it was really destroying the fabric of the world, you know, that people, I mean, first you get, you know, Facebook, people are telling their stories, then you go to, and then there's Twitter and it's like, okay, you have 120 characters or whatever it was. I'm like, okay, they really don't want people to talk. And now Instagram all of a sudden it's like, no words it's just pictures it's like people are you know do you see the dumbing down of the world like but then in the end i was convinced but really a picture could be a thousand words and then you were able to make longer captions yeah so i finally got on there and and, and instagram's been fun for me and it's been pretty good and people love the stories and i've been getting great feedback and stuff and it actually it ended up inspiring me to write you know a five thousand word introduction to my together forever book yeah you know um, because of the reaction I was getting from the uh, stories, you know, that I was writing on Instagram. So, you know, it, it helped inspire me, but I, I haven't posted much in a long time, you know, just because of the political situation, you know, mm -hmm. I, I, my photographs, you know, I've been told, 
you know, and people are always telling me and I love it, you know, and I love the feedback that it inspires them and it continues, they continue to inspire people to this day. Stuff that I did when I was 14 years old is inspiring people, you know, and that's, that's wonderful. And that's great. And I, I love that because that's why I created the work. Yeah, yeah, but, uh, it's good. Yeah, it's good and bad. I think it's just like, for me, it's like, but that, mod- yeah, but, yeah, but that said, is like, you know, during this time, it's like, I've kind of just held back from it, you know, I, I let the political discourse you know, run its course until we get through this particular season. And, and if people don't understand, Alex, and we'll get to my work when you want to, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and I'm sure we've lost half the audience. Already. No, 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 no. This is great. <laughs> you know, um, commie bastard like me, uh, you know, uh, the, um, I think that, uh, you know, all my work is about politics. You might not realize, you think, well, that's a picture of Jay Adams in a pool, or that's, you know, Tony Alva doing the frontside air, or Tony Hawk when he was just 10 years old at his first contest, you know, pro contest or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, or, or, you know, obviously minor threat at the 930 club or black flag at the cuckoo's nest or, yeah. or, you know, uh, you know, or public enemy in a jail cell. I mean, all my work is political, motherfuckers. Guess yeah. what? You know, you might say, oh, I just like his pictures. Fuck his big mouth. Well, fuck you. I don't, you know, my pictures are an extension of my big mouth, motherfucker. That's what it is. Okay. So if you like the pictures, it's the person who has those political ideals that created those images with the subjects, right? My pictures look different from others because of what's inside of me. Right. And if you don't notice that, that's okay. But the people who love my work and have all the books and get inspired by the stuff, a lot of them do understand that there's a difference when this person is making photographs with subjects that they themselves are inspired by. I'm not an, you know, a, 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 a voyeur. I'm not just looking in on someone else's scene. You know, I was a skater. That's why I took those great skate photos, right? I wasn't that good though. You know, mm-hmm. once we were getting over the light in pools, you know, I was like average. I was like right there with everybody. You know, guys were better than me. But some guys weren't as good as me. I could ride fast on the banks and I had a little bit of style and I could ride, you know. But all of a sudden it started progressing and I wasn't that agile and I couldn't do it. So I started taking pictures more, you know. But punk rock shows, I was going to shows for a while before I started taking pictures of them. I was inspired by the people in front of me. And then one out of every 10 shows, I would bring my camera. You know, I didn't carry it all the time. We were in very, you know, you know, kind of hardcore places where, you know, you didn't want to bring an expensive camera. Maybe were, were you like, when you're like a young photographer shooting like that, were you kind of hesitant to start bringing your camera around? Like, or, or was it something you had to like, I don't know, build your confidence, confidence up as a photographer and approaching people or was it what was, what kind of made you kind of only kind of bring your camera around sometimes you think? Well, with skateboarding, I only brought my camera on sometimes because I wanted to ride. Mm-hmm. Number one. <laughs> Number two, you know, when I started to bring a camera around at Kenter and at Paul Revere, I just had a little pocket camera, which funny enough is it's almost like the size of a phone now, right? <laughs> but it was even thicker. And I would put it in my back pocket or in my shirt pocket or, you know, and, and carry my little pocket Instamatic and took photos with that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I could still skate at the same time. And then all of a sudden, you know, I was getting these pictures back that I was even taking on an Instamatic. To explain an Instamatic to a young person, you know, I, I don't even know how to do it. They took really shitty photos. But I mean, what you did was what mattered, but the camera itself couldn't even focus. Yeah. You had no focus, it had a fixed lens. You know, these iPhones, they fucking focus. They, mm-hmm. they, you know, 
they, they make a difference. You know, you could zoom in and out. The pocket and thematic was like a light box. Yeah. It's like the light comes in, it exposes the film and you have to be right where you want to be. And the shutter speed is very slow. It's like a 60th of a second. You had to capture things in a particular way. You had to compose things in a particular way that they would look good. And I started taking these pictures with the pocket and somatic, and they were coming out pretty good. Yeah. And I was getting a feeling with them. So I would bring my camera because I took photography one at Paul Revere. Okay. You know, and I took photography one and I took some photos and I got some pretty good shots, you know, and they were good enough where I was thinking, wow, you know, I'm looking at this at Skateboarder Magazine and Craig Stesick's work and Warren Bolster's work that was very inspiring, but I'm thinking to myself, I'm seeing shit better than that. I could do better than that, maybe. And I was 14. I'm like, and one day I found a pool that I only knew about, you know, in a backyard where there was construction going on, yeah. remodeling in a house where no one was there. Some friend of mine told me about it. And I invited Jay Adams and Paul Constano. Wow. And we went up and I knew them from the schoolyard. And they want, they always, everyone wanted, pool riding was just jumping off. People were like, any good pool that we could find that's empty, we're going. And, and it was really, if you were, if you found a pool, you were king for the day. You were how are you, how are you guys finding pools? Were you just kind of like sco scoping through neighborhoods and just kind of peeking over fences? Or like, how do you kind of find all these pools? Well, sometimes you would find it because someone would be working on a construction site or you would see that there would be a house going on. But yeah. the real trick, the real easy telltale is you see a fucking hose going out in the street, pouring gallons and gallons of water. <laughs> someone's emptying their pool to clean it. Yeah. Or someone's emptying their pool to repair it. Yeah. And, you, and when you see that big flow of water coming down the street and there's a lot of pools in the neighborhood, you know as a skater what's going on. It's just yeah. like skaters now look at curbs and look at places that and walls and different things to ride. If you saw a bit of blue hose coming out a driveway. Like, all right, time to shred. <laughs> you know that it was time to look over that fence and see if that shit was skatable. Yeah. And, and, or a friend of a friend had someone who knew, you know, a friend's house that was abandoned or they were doing construction or whatever. And that's how you would find a pool. So anyways, I, you know, I brought those guys to the pool. I took the, I took photos that day. I made some nice compositions. It was my first time, uh, you know, I was shooting with a borrowed camera, a 35 millimeter camera. I'd actually had one before that, but it got stolen before I even, I don't even know what happened. It just disappeared. Yeah. I never even shot more than a roll of film with it. And that was, and that was six months earlier. And then I had, a, I borrowed a camera from a friend's father or uncle or something like that. And, um, and with the widest angle lens he had, which was only like a 28 or a 35 or a 42 or something like that. And, but I had this borrowed camera that I can't believe he let me borrow it. And when you think back about it, and I made pictures with Jay Adams and PC. And, wow. you know, my foot is in the foreground of the of some of the photos, you know, I'm 14 years old, the composition isn't perfect, but I got some good shots and fucking, and Stacy Peralta, you know, who knew me from the schoolyard since I was 12, I showed him to him and I showed him to Stesic, not even knowing who Stesic was, just this old man on the bank, wow. sitting there at Kenner one day. And they're just like, yeah, these are good. You should send them down to the magazine. You should send them down to Bolster. You know, and they told me what to do. And I looked at the, you read the masthead in the front of the magazine. And it says, you know, um, you know, we accept uh, unsolicited contributions, but we won't return them oh, you know, necessarily. We can't guarantee that they're being returned. And I'm like, my photos are too good. I can't just send them and not get them returned. Yeah. So I called up, I lowered my voice. I've told the story many times and I pretended that I was older. And I <laughs> called and asked to speak to the editor. 
and I spoke to Warren Bolster or, or whoever, or, or maybe Paul Haven, whoever was art directing. I don't remember. I think it was Bolster. And I said, look, I've got these pictures of Jay Adams and I'm going to send them down. <laughs> you know, you didn't, you couldn't send digital files. You had to send the film. Yeah. You couldn't even send prints because they were color slides. And I had some print and I say, and negatives because they had to print them themselves there at the time, you know? So I had to send all my originals in an envelope down there. And there was no FedEx. No. You sent it in a regular envelope in regular mail. And they said, they promised me, don't worry, we'll take care of them and we'll get them back to you. You know, I told them who I knew, who I was shooting. And they said, great. So, you know, uh, you know, I sent them down to them and things didn't move fast back then, you know? And I don't know whether it was a month later, it was actually probably a couple months later, I got an envelope in the mail and, you know, mm-hmm. the tear sheet. Damn. And Good. it said, you know, and I opened it up and I was looking for the picture because there's a big, the whole other side was covered in one shot and I didn't even look at it. And I looked at the shot where all the text was, the contest coverage. And I'm looking at a bunch of postage stamp size photos. I'm like, where's my picture? And I turn it over and I'm like, oh my God, my picture is the whole fucking page. Damn. My name is like in 12 point type at the bottom and, of the and page. You were, and you were like 14, 15. And I was 14 years old. And Damn. I was like, yeah. and no one knew other than the guys who were there that day that I was so young. The yeah. editor didn't know, no one knew. And it was like, yeah, I was fucking stoked. And it was, uh, it was amazing. It was on from that point forward. I got a full page of Jay Adams flying out of the pool and no one had even gotten above coping before in a yep. photograph. Yep. It did not happen before. Um, of someone doing it in that way. I mean, there were some stesic photos where, you know, Jay was flying and stuff, but there was nothing like this. And even though he wasn't making it, it uh, and I was really pissed off actually at the photo that they used because I had better photos, much better photos. Than they, but Bolster had the vision to think like there was a lot of attitude in the shot and, and just the fact that he was getting above the coping, mm-hmm. people weren't really used to seeing that. And it inspired people to think in a different way. And that was the genius of Warren Bolster to know that that photo and quite honestly, that's your subscription ad. I mean, that's like one of the most important photos in the magazine because mm-hmm. they want to sell subscriptions. The cover is a different story. You want to sell magazines, but the cover has to speak to certain commercial aspects of the sport and make everyone happy. You got to be wearing safety equipment and all these different things to make the cover back then. Most of the time, not all the time. Um, but this photo, you know, spoke to people and it was the subscription ad and it was great. Yeah, it was really what I'm what very happy about that like what did your like your your parents think of like you your like photography early on like were they like supportive of it or like did they really care or, like what are you kind of like growing my parents up were doing their own thing yeah they had no idea of what i was doing yeah i mean my dad and my mom were supportive but not really because they didn't know what the fuck i was doing mm-hmm. they kind of were just in awe every month when i would show a magazine there'd be a picture in there they just like i don't think they even got it yeah They're like how's this even happening how's this kid doing this you know, I don't know. It's just like, it was kind of weird. I just, I was very independent to be honest, you know? Yeah. I was going to, I was going to ask you I had a lot of hustle and a lot of heart. That's what I was going to ask you, man. Like, cause like researching this and watching a lot of interviews you've done, like, like you, you have like a lot of confidence and you're not afraid to say what's on your mind. Like, have you always just even been like that as a kid? And like, where does that like confidence and like this, like not being afraid to like speak your mind come from you think? Um, I think it's because I have a passion for justice. Mm. And honestly, I mean, I grew up, you know, I was born in 1962. Yeah. I was in elementary school when Martin Luther King was shot. You know, um, I grew up with all races of people. My best friends were, you know, always very 
mixed ethnicities. Yep. Um, I always got along with most everybody I was around to some degree. Um, but I was always an outsider too, because I moved a lot as a kid. I started in New Jersey, you know, right across from New York City um, in Englewood, you know, which they say is one of the first fully integrated school systems in the country, mm-hmm. um, which I didn't know that back then. I learned it later when Gary Harris, uh, may he rest in peace, wrote the uh, afterward in my My Rules book. His mom was a teacher in that same system. And he told me, yeah, you were part of a great experiment. And mm-hmm. so was he. He was, a, he was two years older than me and he went to the same school and we knew some of the same kids, but we didn't meet until we were in our twenties in the hip hop era. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but he told, you know, we, I grew up during a very incredible time, you know, yeah. and I was just inspired by what was going on around me. You know, I was politicized since I was a little kid. I didn't want to go to the Vietnam war, you mm-hmm. know, and I, so I supported McGovern in, you know, 72. I supported Humphrey in 68 because we were against Nixon, you know, because um, we knew he was, you know, a war monger, a hawk. Um, Who the fuck wants to go to war except for a fucking idiot, you know? But I was very inspired by, obviously, as a little kid, you know, the hippie generation and all that. And, uh, you know, and just justice and peace, you know, we, you know, a peace sign was something that we grew up with, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that that inspired me. And I always just thought it was important. And I think being an outsider as a kid, moving around from New Jersey to California and switching schools, I never went to the same school for more than two or three years in my life. So I was never really someone who, you know, fit in with anybody. And I think it gave me that a little bit of that outsider perspective, but also a, um, a sympathy and a compassion and empathy for outsiders, you yeah. know, because the people I would become were usually nerds or outcasts, you know, that, uh, that not everyone else necessarily liked. I mean, maybe in high school, you know, there were a couple of kids that I was, you know, cooler kids that I was friendly with. Mm-hmm. And because by high school, I was already published and people kind of were knowing who I was and stuff like that a little bit. Um, and I was, you know, and I moved back to New York and, you know, and I was the California kid in the school and all this stuff. And I had, you know, so I had a little bit of popularity, but not really, you know, I never had really good grades or anything like that. And I wasn't an athlete, mm-hmm. you know, I was always a, you know, tall, skinny kid. Um, and, um, you know, so I think that just having that outsider's perspective and a little bit of a misfit thing going on. It's just that it always made me, you know, sympathetic yeah. uh, to other people and other cultures that were interesting to me. And, you know, skateboarding spoke to me and, and say it helped my life. You know, skateboarding runs through my veins. It's, 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 it's part of who I am. It's, you know, it's where I cut my teeth in photography, Yeah. you know, um, and, you know, and the renegade, you know, way that we used to do it, jumping over people's fences and going into private property and into, uh, you know, uh, drainage ditches and and stuff that was government property and stuff like that. And having your camera with you or or just going there to skate without, you know, without worrying about the camera and stuff like that. You know, you really, um, you know, there's a, you know, you, you, you learn to live life a certain way. And then, of course, my mother was a very creative person and had a very, very strong aesthetic so, you know, and a real perfectionist, I have to say, and it drove me with my art, mm-hmm. you know, I never rarely considered myself a photographer, you know, I always thought, um, you know, it was more of an art thing for me, you know, and I hate the name, you know, being, you know, an artist it sounds so, uh, you know, uh, elitist or whatever it sounds, you know, whatever, yeah. but it's, um, but, but I am an artist, that's what I am. I'm a creator really is what I am. And, mm-hmm. uh, and, and, uh, art, you know, 
I've always been had a very strong aesthetic and, and a way of thinking about things. And and as I got older and I would cooperate and work with other people, I think getting to my attitude, it's like, look, I grew up in skateboarding when we started getting popular, my work started getting published. The guys who I was hanging out with were fucking from a very rough side of town and I was from the nice side of town. They yep. toughened me up. Mm-hmm. I had to be tough to hang out with them, you know? Yep. And, you know, that was a Dogtown crew, right? And I got bullied and harassed, but I was respected, you know, because my work was my work, right? Yeah. And, you know, and by the time punk rock came along, most of the guys who were involved in punk rock knew who I was because they were all skaters. So I was respected on that level. And I got in and I was a punk rocker and I, you know, I was into the punk music and the whole lifestyle and the music, you know, kept me alive, you know, Um, as did most music, you know, music is very important in my life. So I think that, you know, the subjects and the subject matter is my life. And so that's why the photographs speak to people. And I think, and the aesthetic part of it, growing up, you know, around a creative parent and just creative people my whole life, um, you know, and the great art teachers that I had as a, as a kid that inspired me, you know, to, and pushed me to continue doing what I did, even though I wouldn't do assignments in class. I mean, you know, you might have read, Alex, you know, I got a D in photography one. <laughs> You know, but six months later, I was published. Yeah. You know, um, or six, I took the photo that got published six months after I got that D. I got the D because I didn't follow the assignments. Mm -hmm. I didn't do what was, you know, but I learned the basics of photography. And that's what I teach, tell everyone. And I try to teach people, learn how to use your camera. That's all you got to do. Just learn how to use the equipment you have. And the less equipment you have, the better. Yeah. Learn how to use that equipment to the best of its ability. And that's all you need to do. Because if you're good, it will come from inside you. It's not about the equipment. I still use Pentex cameras to this day. That's what I use. And I use film cameras to this day. I don't shoot nearly as much, but I love using my Pentex K1000. I used back in the day before the K1000 was even made in 19, I want to say 70 or maybe 80, 79, 80, 82, the K1000 came out. I had, uh, you could look it up online while we're talking. The, uh, <laughs> I, I used like the KM yep. and then I used the MX and I got the MX cause I was a kid and it was smaller and it also was able to have a motor drive and the motor drive we were tr- getting into using in skateboarding back then to show a sequence of what was going on, you know, yeah. power winder, some people called them, you know, cause that's what Canon had. They had the AE1 had the power winder. So you didn't have to cock the camera. I used it for sports, you know, for, for skateboarding. Um, anyways, uh, you know, learn how to use the equipment and then what's in you and what's in your heart and what's in your brain and the passion you have will come out on the film or on the exposure. Right. And yeah, it has nothing to do with your equipment. And, you know, and and I grew up since I was a kid, I didn't have unlimited film. I mean, skateboarder would give me like a couple of rolls of film every month, you know? maybe three rolls film. I was, you know, and other guys on the staff would shoot like, you know, 20 or 30 rolls in a day. I would shoot one or two rolls in a day at the most. Sometimes I wouldn't even finish a roll in a day because if the skating wasn't good enough, I didn't like what was going on. I just wouldn't shoot and I would get badgered and fucked up. I'm like, dudes, you guys aren't doing anything that's worth (laughs) shooting. You know, it's like, what am I supposed to do? And, you know, and I would push people and then people would push me back, you know? I'm like, like, I'd be just sitting there just shaking my head. No, that's not good so enough. Yeah, you, you really have to pick not. your moments. Yeah, that air is not high enough, you know. Yeah. 
And, um, you know, and certainly I didn't take a great picture every time at all. There's tons of pictures that are bad, you know, the throwaways, especially in skate stuff yeah. and in music stuff where you can't predict what's going on. You know, you can't predict that next 500th of a second, but you could be close to it. And you, and you, and once you get enough time with it, you, you know, you're, you know, you're, you get better at it and you could predict it better, you know? I mean, another thing about skateboarding photography, I know you're skate centric and, and I've yeah. noticed that you've interviewed some skate subjects here before, yep. excuse me. You know, is people should understand in any photography buff that, you know, when, and, and, and a lot of people know my work because they see the fisheye and they think that that's my thing and that's not my thing. Mm -hmm. I happen to use it, but if you notice, I don't use it in a, you know, in, in a uh, caricature type way you know i don't use it as a as a um <clears throat> as a novelty you know um skateboarding photographers started with a fisheye lens because it came from surfing right warren bolster brought it to the pools eventually but they used it in the water so you could see the environment and be close to the surfer yeah so you could be in the wave see the wave and see the surfer coming at you right yeah. and then it's the same thing for why i used it in the pools it's like it wasn't to like bend the picture it wasn't to be making a caricature it's so you could see the environment while being close to the subject and that's what a fisheye is for yeah you know to be able to get or a wide angle to get close and still see the environment that you're in now sometimes you might use it for something goofy and this and that but for people who use it as a novelty all the time they're just losing the beauty of that lens really it's not a fucking novelty fisheye lens ultra wide angle lens it's not a novelty to me it's how my eyes see how about that our peripheral vision we have a wide angle lens i could i could see both my hands right now that this lens on the fucking iMac doesn't even see yeah it's wide that's how we see it i see the whole room right now but i'm focusing on you mm -hmm. and we all know as skateboarders that the environment, what we're riding is as important as what we're doing. Oh yeah, definitely. You know? And so I, I don't think that a lot of people explain that good enough to people. And I, and I mean, I'll use a long lens every once in a while for a skate shot, but there's no, there's very little character. It's always like, it's it, like if you ever see like a newspaper <laughs> photographer, like shoot skateboarding and they're not like a skater, they'll always like show the skater and you, all you see is like the sky, but you have no perspective of like where they're coming from. And it's like you said, like there's, that's why they use the wide angle. Cause you can see like where they started, where are they coming from? Where are they landing? Where they're not just like lost somewhere in the picture. And just how cool the fucking pool is. Yeah. How yeah, big yeah. ass <laughs> the pool is or, the, or the, the thing that you're writing. Now that doesn't mean it's needed everywhere. And when you're shooting buildings and you're shooting street skating, I don't think you do need a fisheye then because you yeah. don't need to be close to the action yeah. as, you, as you do with a pool, you know? Um, sometimes that you do, but when you do it, I wish they would just do it in a way that didn't distort everything so much, you know, mm -hmm. make it look so corny and, and you know, and unrealistic, you know? Um, and also, but, but then, you know, and, and I think it's really important what a lot of people lack today and not that you're asking, but I've said it before in skate photography is character and style you know you just don't see that stuff anymore it's more mechanical but skateboarding is more mechanical right skateboarding is more tricks or you know back in the dogtown days we always used to say tricks are for kids yeah you know like the cereal box you know that you know that that it was tricks are for kids like you know you just made fun of people who did freestyle and everything that people are doing nowadays is freestyle based if it's you know with you know flipping your boards and little 
you know, mechanical things. We were into cruising and going fast and having style and doing slides, yeah. you know, and, and turns, not fucking, you know, all this Tech fucking baton <laughs> twirling bullshit. Yeah. I, 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 you know, I look at Rodney Mullen is amazing and he's a fucking genius and I respect the hell out of him. And he took it to another level. And there were guys before him, like Chris Dawson mm -hmm. in the sixties, you know, and, and who taught the Z boys how to become all around riders and, and Paul Hoffman on a Zephyr team, you know, who did, who did nose wheelies and, 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 and all these other guys who, who were great at freestyle, but that wasn't what we were about. I, I was, was, I was aggression. Gonna... Yeah. I like fucking aggressive shit. That's what we did. Yeah. Freestyling and practicing your tricks over and over again. That is just not, I mean, it's skateboarding to youth today and I get it and yeah. that's cool, but it's, and, and I even, I like watching it sometimes, but when you're falling nine out of 10 times, when you try a trick or more, it's like, you know, there's something to that. And that's good because the youth has their own thing, but it's not how I grew up. It's yeah. Not what I'm I, I was going to ask you that because you have some really cool photos of Rodney Mullen. And I was curious, like back then when Rodney Mullen was doing all that, like freestyle stuff, like did, what, did people respect them or was it this kind of like, how do they kind of view him back then? Cause like you're saying, like you guys are more of this kind of this cruising around shredding. shredding. No, you couldn't, you couldn't help but respect Rodney Mullen. Okay. Yeah. He is such on such another level, but did you think it was kind of corny and whack and you know, soft? Yeah, yeah. No one, no one I knew cared about freestyle at all. And that was flat ground riding and doing tricks is freestyle. Yeah. And we all thought that was corny as fuck. And it was soft and we didn't like it. But when you and, and most and we thought that way about most every freestyle rider. But when Rodney Mullen did his thing from the time we first saw him when he was like 12, you were looking at that guy. He was a savant. Yeah. He was. He yeah. was a fucking savant. Yeah. He, like you, like he's like fucking Rain Man. You know, he's doing something that no one else could do. And you're like, you just gotta watch him and be like. Holy fuck! How did he even come up with those things? Where is he riding on the on one wheel? Yeah, kicking <laughs> the board around, riding on the side of the board. On the, I mean, to me, it's like, and you know, you could be a hater, and we were in a way, like you know, well, it's a skateboard. You're supposed to roll on it, not just flip on it, you know. Yeah. But that was our understanding of what it was. But again, Rodney Mullen, I, I think you, no matter what, no matter how much you hated freestyle, and I was a freestyle hater, you respected Rodney Mullen. Yeah, because the other guys, I had no respect for. I didn't care about. <laughs> any of those other guys. They were kooks to me. All those guys, I won't name their names. They own skateboard companies now. They were all kooks to me. <laughs> they were all kooks to everyone. No one liked them. They were fucking their own. People just thought they were kooks. That's all they were. But yeah. you always had to respect Rodney. Yeah, he's a legend. He was just doing his own thing, and you got to respect it. Like, people clowned on him. He's like, "Fuck you! I'm gonna do my thing. I like this Dude, shit." People, yeah. no one clowned on him because he was a little tiny guy who spoke in a very little tiny voice. Yeah, and he obviously we didn't know at the time what he was going through in his life. Yeah, but like I'm telling you, he he was a savant in yeah. a way. And and when you see him on his board, you could do nothing but respect him ever. Yeah. Yeah, there was never you could never hate on Rodney Mullen yeah. as much as you could hate freestyle. You could not hate on that kid yeah. because he also he would he didn't he just did his thing. He just kept focus. I love it. And man. I'll tell you, I seen Rodney Mullen get a one wheeler in a pool too. He could ride. He could. Oh ride. really? I'm not saying he was good, but he could ride vertical. Okay. He, he concentrated on what he did, and, yeah. and he, he he's an amazing human being. I love him dearly. He is an incredible person, mm -hmm. and and as an adult, and yeah. He's, and he's changed so much as you see my pictures of him. He's, he's, a, he's literally 12 or 14, 13 or something. He's, you know, he's a real little guy. 
And my picture of him, if you have the My Rules book and you read his story, which I didn't even know mm -hmm. about that day. I didn't even know until five years ago when I made the My Rules book, Rodney's story about the day we shot his cover for Thrasher. Yeah. When I had minor threat there at the same time. Yeah, he you lost know? that contest. If you read that story, he actually thought it was going to be his last. I'm not going to, I'm not going to even tell you the story. You got to yeah, get yeah. my rules book. I have it. I read it. It was a great story. It, and uh, I mean, it was the longest essay in the book it was 1500 words. Yeah. No, and, it, and I was just floored yeah. by his whole perspective of that day. I had no idea that that day meant anything like it meant to him until 30 years, 40 years later when he wrote it down for me, I couldn't believe it. The, the other, the other story in that book that, um, took me by surprise maybe what was alan geflin um who, who's he created the ollie and what he said was like yeah i started getting like recognition and they started flying me to california but that's like once it be started becoming like a like a job or something like that like it, he lost the fun and he quit and i guess for you did you kind of ever feel that way with photography at all like you obviously start with photography just out of your pure love of it and like creating imagery. But then at a certain point, like you, it does become like your career and that's how you make a living. Like, did you ever lose the passion once you have to like turn it into like balancing like your artistic and working with like commercial avenues, I guess. Well, I'm very lucky in this way. I have not had to do that because mm -hmm. I have never almost, I just don't take jobs that I don't like. Yeah. And being a professional skateboarder was not a job mm -hmm. that Ollie liked Yeah, in the way they were pushing him to do things, or even Jay Adams for that matter. They didn't like being pushed into doing things, doing demos and doing stuff that they didn't want to do and it becoming all about contests. And I admire both those guys tremendously. And they're very different people, mm -hmm. you know? But um, yeah, I mean, I when I was starting out, I never thought I was going to be a photographer. I did it because I loved it. I never even knew I was a photographer until when skateboarding and punk rock were almost done. Yeah. I still didn't consider myself a photographer. It was when I came, moved back to New York in 1985, 86, 87, when I had to find, got my own house at that apartment at that time, but I was still living here before I had my own place. You know, when I had to pay taxes for the first time, when I got out of college, Yeah. you know, but by the way, when I was growing up, you didn't have to pay taxes until if you were a full-time student. Oh, no matter yeah. how much money you earned, if you were a full-time student, you didn't have to pay taxes because most full-time students couldn't make that much. Yeah, yeah. So that was really good. That was helpful to me, you know. And but but once I wasn't, I moved to New York. I wasn't a student anymore, and I had to pay taxes. And I, you know, on my tax thing, it said photographer mm -hmm. slash artist slash producer. Yeah, because I had already produced a record that was still making me royalties, you know. Shit. And um, you know, but uh, what was the question again? Just like, did you ever like, like how Alan was just talking about once, like he, he started with skateboarding and it was his love, but then once it started oh, yeah, okay. to become. Well, let me tell you. So I'm going to tell you that back, even before I moved to New York, back in probably around 1980, when I was shooting punk rock bands mm -hmm. and beginning to make a little bit of money and I did my first album cover and stuff, I, you know, my mom or someone suggested that I try working for a record company and get a real job, yeah. you know, not just keep contributing freelance all the time. Mm -hmm. And I tried doing like literally one job for Electra Records. You know, someone knew someone and they got me a job to shoot a show. And it was just, it, it was something I didn't ever want to do. I <laughs> shot like a country singer, you know, <laughs> a label. 
and it was at some country club, you know, country club, meaning a country music club, you know, yeah, out and about a famous place. I forget the name, but it was a very famous place where some punk bands played later. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, and, you know, and I shot the Go-Go's for IRS Records. They hired me because they knew my, I did the Circle Jerks cover and they liked my stuff. And the Go-Go's were originally a punk band, you know, and I shot some stuff. And the photos, the funny thing is I learned, Alex, is that when I shot things that I didn't really like, the work was never as good. Yeah. Totally. I mean, now I can make stuff look good and I could wait for those moments. But when you feel what's in front of you, your work is going to be better, at least for me. I'm very connected to my work. Some people could just shoot anything and make it look good or make it look like their style. I need to be caring about what I'm shooting, mm-hmm. you know? And that's why my stuff, I think, you know, people relate to it as much as they do and they enjoy it and they appreciate it and they recognize that it's mine because there's some passion in my work and there's some heart. And they could see, not always, and not everyone could see that, but a lot of people, you know, the best feedback I love when I read on Instagram, whatever else, like, you know, I know it's yours because I could see that you know it and you feel what's going on in the work. You know, you're not just yeah. there shooting. I'm not just a shooter. I, I'm not, I'm not, a, I don't capture. Yeah. I compose and I create images with people. And, you know, and, and, and that's what I do. And that yeah. might sound a little... You know, yeah. artsy parts well, you're, I, I think it comes across, you're a part of that community being at skateboarding or the the punk rock or whatever it may be like you're not just like showing up for a day like it's it's your life and that's why i think any photographer's work i've always responded to is like whatever if they shoot baseball and that's what they love or if they shoot like some people love food or whatever and it's like if you can tell they're really about it like that's what kind of comes through it's not just like they're not just trying to throw something out there and hope people like it. It's more because they're about that community, I guess. Yeah, I mean, and also with my stuff is that you could see that there's a closeness. Yeah. You know, a, a, an access to the subjects because I'm interested in them that other people might not have. I mean, and quite literally with the wide angle lenses that I use most of the time, I'm very close to the people as I'm shooting them, yeah. you know, or, or in creating images with them and composing the images. Like I'm very close to them because of the wide angle. And that gives that intimacy, right? Yeah. And I'm a good editor. You know, I don't fucking just put out shitty photos. I don't take that many shitty photos. I try and really, you know, I I care about this shit. I really want it to tell a story, you know, that 500th of a second has to tell the story of the whole day or of a whole month or of a whole era. Yeah. Depending on where the image is being published. And, you know, uh, looking at our work, I mean, the stuff I really love is you were there from like, the, like basically like the birth of hip hop. Like you're shooting like public enemy, rock him, uh, like run DMC, all these legendary. It wasn't the birth, the birth of hip hop. Hip hop started late in the seventies, man. I was there yeah. at the birth. I yeah. was there right before it started getting yeah. above ground. Got it. Well, early you know, and Alex, you got to get a background, man. Early days, early days, early days. No, no. I mean a background behind you. You're old. Your, your background's boring. <laughs> You got to get some green screen or something and have some of the photos that we're talking about behind. I you. know, dude, I've been in this something space like for like a, a year and I don't have shit. I got to get some like boy. picture. Do I need to see a poster too? <laughs> Jesus, man. Yeah, hey, I got to get it together, man. Um, but when you're going to do a video, you know, yeah. you got to do something. You got to make it interesting. No, man, it's my face, man. They're here for my face, Glenn. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I'm in this frame. I don't need that. It's about my work. It's not about me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, when you started shooting hip hop, like how did you kind of, what do you remember about like some of the first artists you were photographing and like what kind of interested you about that music when you first started photographing it? Well, you know, the, the Beastie Boys were my entree into hip hop photography because they were a punk rock band mm-hmm. and I didn't really have a way 
to get into it without them. Although I did shoot UTFO right after I shot them. And then I just found my way very quickly because there was not really any good quality photography being done in hip hop yet. There just, yep. just, there were no photographers that were doing, you know, really good work as yep. far as I can, was concerned. There were some shooting, but most of the best stuff, and there was some good stuff, but most of the best stuff was all done in studios, right? And that to me was very, uh, you know, sterile. Yeah. And hip hop is not a sterile art form, you know? So I was very disappointed in seeing that stuff, even though there was some character and some good shots taken in studios. But to me, it was just boring and not what the art was about. And it was mostly, and even when, and that's only when it was good quality because there was poor quality stuff shot out on the streets. Yeah. And, and, and there's some, you know, there's some, uh, that's not always the case. There's, there's some good early photography of hip hop, but it's very rare, mm -hmm. very, very rare. And there was not much of it. And I thought that it deserved better than what it was getting. And after I had shot, done that wonderful, you know, session with the Beasties while they were out in LA, when I was still out in LA, still a student at UCLA and just finished, you know, managing suicidal tendencies and producing their first record. And, you know, it was kind of not shooting Black Flag anymore because I didn't like the way the music was going. I didn't like the way the band was going and everything yeah. like that. And, and other punk stuff was just getting boring to me and generic. Um, and the Beastie Boys come to town on the Madonna tour and I knew them when they were a punk rock band and they didn't know anyone else in LA. So I hung out with them and showed them around town and we had a good time and I, and I loved, hip hop was appealing to me because it was just different and new and very dynamic and it seemed kind of fun and simple and clean. And I really appreciated that clean in the way it was produced and very, you know, staccato and, you know, just, I, I don't know, there was something about it that I really liked, mm -hmm. uh, maybe the simplicity and, um, and then my friends were doing it, made it seem even more simple. Um, and I did that session. And, you know, when people back in New York got to see it, the guys who were managing the Beastie Boys at the time and producing the records, everyone loved it. And so whenever groups came out to LA, because I was still in college at UCLA, um, you know, came out, I would, uh, we would do photo sessions with them. And my photos were like nothing they had ever seen before. Or I would, and I was a photographer like they had never dealt with before. You know, I'm, I'm in people's face when I shoot. I'm friendly with them and I talk to them and I, and if, and depending on, and I have conversation while we're doing stuff and, and not being with people like run DMC for the first time, I'm like politicizing them as I'm shooting them. Yeah. I'm talking to them about stuff that, um, you know, uh, excuse me one second. We got to take a quick break. Yeah, you're good. Sorry, Alex kid. Had, oh, you're good. At home schooling. <laughs> it's a lot, you know, he's doing it on the computer and he's going out for the, on a lunch break, which is crazy, but yeah, go soon for 10 minutes and get back to class. No worries. Um, yeah, anyways, uh, how's it going so far? All right, yeah, we're good. I won't take up much more of your time. I just have a few more, dude. Questions. Whatever you want, let's just yeah. do it right. Yeah, you know, yeah, I yeah. Wanna, you know, I want you know, I appreciate I, you know, it. I want it to be good. No, it's great, man. I, I love talking to you. Um, yeah, we're just talking about like photographing hip hop and stuff because, like, when you started photographing at that point, like, were there many publications even like like covering hip hop at all? And like, who were kind of some of the first publications, I guess, that started covering hip hop if they were? Well, when I first started shooting hip hop, um, there were no no publications dedicated to hip hop yet. It was still yeah. kind of like people were trying to figure it out. I mean, there are people now that have become very famous hip hop journalists and known for that. But even back then they didn't think it was gonna last. Yeah. You know, and I won't name names, but it's kind of corny. And we make fun of those guys like, 
or you didn't even think it was going to be nothing. And now you, you make a living off of it. You, everyone considers you a, you know, a person who does that, you know, and you're the man now. Mm -hmm. and you used to fucking disrespect hip hop practically. Mm -hmm. They did. And it's kind of funny, but, um, but no, I mean, that was the thing is why my stuff got very popular too. And while the people, you know, part of, uh, my responsibility to my subjects, right. I always have had a responsibility to my subjects. I always wanted people to know about these things. I wanted to inspire other people. So when I started working with hip hop groups, I was getting there because of my roots in skateboarding and even in punk rock and music stuff that I was doing, I was getting hip hop into, you know, relatively mainstream media that they never were going to get into. Yeah. I got, you know, run DMC on the cover of a rock magazine called BAM in Los Angeles. And, and it was a California music magazine. And I got Public Enemy reviewed in Thrasher. Wow. You know, it was the first hip hop thing ever interviewed, reviewed in Thrasher besides the Beastie Boys. And I got the Beastie Boys reviewed in Thrasher too. Wow. You know, and um, so, you know, my, you know, and, and then, you know, and then you eventually get it in Spin Magazine. We got the cover of Spin Magazine uh, with the Beastie Boys. And um, and then it began to spread. And then you had, you know, years later, uh, what was the magazine? You know, a lot of magazines started popping up. You know, Rock and Soul was the first one. Mm -hmm. And then Word Up Magazine came later. And, and they were pretty ugly. They were pretty ugly publications, but they were, you know, made by uh, publishing houses that were used to working in the urban areas. And they, you know, and the, and the style of them was pretty low budget. And, um, but, you know, but newspapers were interested very early on i mean i got my uh contents page shot of uh, eric b and rakim in the village voice which was a really big free wow. paper in new york at the time or maybe it was a dollar i don't remember and uh you know and that was a really big deal for me because i loved the village voice it was, you know the punk rock days that was a big you know it was just a very important newspaper back then and uh you know and and then of course yeah new york times and you know started covering it and all that stuff and, and they had their own magazines but you know i guess i was started doing more you know record covers is how I was beginning is, is, is what I started doing because my stuff was, you know, I mean, Rick Rubin and Russell Simmons, you know, they became my best friends at the time because of the, and, and we all met because of my Beastie Boys photos. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, as soon as they came out with Run DMC to do American Bandstand for the first time, that's when we really connected and became good friends uh, for life after meeting that day, at, you know, on that and, uh, but we had talked a lot before that because they had loved my work. They loved yeah. my work and they paid for it more than they'd ever paid for anyone else's work, which wow. was like $400 at the time for like, you know, a bunch of photos and, and uh, you know, to use for press. And, um, and of course, as soon as they met me, I was going to start doing the, you know, the important album covers that I wanted to do because mm -hmm. I wouldn't do every album cover or, or if it was a group that I didn't particularly like and Russell really wanted me to do it, I would do it, you know? Yeah. Um, but I did Public Enemy's first two album covers you know, and I would have done, you know, LL Cool J's first album cover uh, and Beastie Boy's first album cover. Rick had ideas that he wanted. He just wanted graphic ideas. He didn't want pictures of the groups. Yeah. And and I wasn't back in New York when those were done yet. So they just had studio stuff done or one of, yeah. you know, uh, on the uh, LL was just studio stuff and the and the radio on the one. But yeah. I did, the you know, the second album cover for LL and uh, Beasties just had, you know, their friends shoot the inside at the time. And, uh, and that was all before I moved back to New York. And, um, 
and then of course that uh airplane on the cover you know? and, and and would like the record labels or the artists themselves give you a lot of input on like how they wanted their album covers to look or did you kind of have free reign to kind of approach it however you wanted to artistically or what was you that know, before i ever shot an album cover i always ask people even if people ask me to usually it's artists that come to me not the record label mm-hmm. i mean with def jam it was different because the label was artists you know rick rubin was an artist R- russell simmons was a businessman but he was an artist too but working with them was like working with an artist rather than a label because it was very in- it was run like an independent at the time um but usually it's the artists and sometimes people have ideas and sometimes I have the ideas after I listen to the stuff. I mean, I never would ever take a job or okay a job without hearing the music first. And if I didn't like it, I wouldn't do it. Um, In rare occasions, I would do that for friends. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Friends band. I mean, I didn't want to shoot Slayer. I didn't want to shoot Orange Juice Jones. Both of those were Def Jam, you know, uh, Rick Rubin and Russell. It's because they were my friends and they really wanted me to do it. Yeah. you know, and they and they had confidence that I would do it the way they wanted, so I did. You know, and, yeah. and um, but most of the stuff it's because I really loved what was going on, and I would do it. And with the groups that would ask me to do their work um, or to work with me, um, I would talk with them at great length. I mean, you know, Public Enemy's first album cover. I mean, I was hanging out with Chuck for a good year before we did that, and Chuck gave me a sketch of, and he told me the name of the album cover and what we wanted to do. And so it was very much Chuck's ideas with my vision and his sketches, you know, he, Yo Bum Rush the Show, he wanted to take over the, you know, the, uh, you know, the, the DJ at the party. That was the idea. They were coming into Yo Bum Rush, the, they were going to bum rush the show of hip hop, yep. you know, and that's what they did. And, uh, you know, and, and that was his drawing. Uh, it's really great to have the sketch. I mean, and I made it look more raw and very basement. You know, Rick Rubin had some input. He wanted me to just use some really shitty film so it looked really grainy. He didn't even want me to use a 35 millimeter camera. He wanted me to use an Instamatic. Oh, wow. You know, and I said, I'm not going that far, but I'll make, <laughs> it, look, I'll make it look gritty enough. And, and that was one of those occasions where I really did work very closely, you know, with the ideas and even with a sketch beforehand. I mean, someone like Slick Rick, it was completely my idea to put him on a rooftop and and to have that beautiful setting and to call it, even to call it the great adventures of Slick Rick was my idea. Um, you know, LL Cool J's uh, Bigger and Deffer album, you know, we just shot a lot of pictures. It was, we, no one knew that day what it was gonna be that we were gonna use for the album cover, but when we were out there that night and, you know, experimenting with the time exposure of him standing on his car in front of the school, I don't even, you know, made me think of that at the time, but I just thought it would look cool when I got him to pull up on the curb and lean against the fence and, and <laughs> just did that shit. And I only had two exposures of him. Damn. You know, on the on there, taken with I used the six by seven camera that day. I, I haven't in my entire life I probably didn't even shoot 10 rolls of film on my six by seven that I still own. Um I should probably sell that to somebody if anyone <laughs> uses those they, cameras. They, they sell they sell good now. Yeah I've got a great case of equipment um you know all lenses and everything but Yep. Anyways, um, the uh, but that LL one, yeah, I mean that was a you know, and I shot pictures in his grandma's basement that day. We didn't know what was going to be the cover until we got everything back. But that time exposure for the front cover of Bad, he's it's a time exposure, so it's a little bit out of focus mm-hmm. because he's moving. If you notice, everything else is sharp. It's because he moved. It's a little out of focus. So I really, but the composition on it was so good that we just went with that. You know, the graphics are all corny. You know. Uh, you know, but, but the photograph speaks for itself. Yeah. And like, how do you approach? Cause like, 
portrait shoots because it's interesting looking at your work like obviously you started with skateboarding and it's action um, but then it looks like when you started getting more into music and stuff um, portraiture became a big part of your work like in, in your like how do you approach portraiture like be it you're photographing the beastie boys or ll like what's that kind of your approach to portraiture do you work quickly do you kind of go into each of these shoots like and have an idea of like how you want to approach it or what's kind of i guess your overall approach to portraiture well, most of the time, I know the people that I'm shooting. Yeah. And I'm actually friendly with them. I shot LL, the first time I shot him, he only had one single out and no one had even seen what he looked like yet. Yeah. Um, and I was just waiting for Run DMC to come pick me up to go shoot out in Hollis, Queens. And we shot in the neighborhood, you know, of, of the Rush office out there by Madison Square Park. And, um, and you know, just from that, I mean, everyone I shoot, mostly when I shoot their portraits, I know them. Mm -hmm. and later on in life they knew me yeah and they respected my work so they listened to me um what i do is most often i don't shoot that much anymore i shoot pictures of my kid yeah. i shoot portraits very rarely i did a band shot last year um with some friends because they really asked me to and they really wanted me to and i really didn't want to do it it's my least favorite thing to do <laughs> but we did it because yeah. four of them ganged up on me pretty much <laughs> and really had a lot of respect and were very nice and very yeah. cool. And they're all good guys, but I really didn't want to do it, but I did it. Yeah. And, and we had fun doing it. In the end, we had fun doing it. And what I like doing it is just hanging out with friends, walking around an area where we're going to meet and just looking at compositions and just looking at backgrounds and feeling something. And then knowing the people that I'm shooting and portraying knowing their personalities and trying to bring that out in the photographs yeah. and make them look cool. Really, that's the real goal of all photography when <laughs> I shoot portraits is particularly if it's men or women, but men in particular, because I don't find them as beautiful as women, yeah. um, is to make them look cool. That's what I always liked about the Beast of Boys stuff. This look like, like you said, you're they're, they're your friends. So it's just like the photos is like, it's just like, yeah, you're hanging out with your friends. It's kind of like wasting, wasting time almost like how any normal person would just whatever it is, it's kind of whatever the day might bring. That's why I always kind of enjoyed about those pictures. It's just like. But they're very strict compositions as well. You have to realize. Yep, respect totally. that. Sometimes they don't look like it, yep. but I am telling people to move their nose to the left, chin mm -hmm. up. I'm, I'm positioning everyone almost all the time. And, and for some people, they really hate working with me, but they like the results. Yeah. And other people, you know, just love it the whole time and they have fun and they see that. I, and, and, and most people right away, they, I've heard and what they tell me is just, you know, like working with me is not like working with anyone else. I'm very, very particular and mm -hmm. I just do it my way. Yeah. And sometimes we won't shoot a photo for an hour. Mm -hmm. We'll walk around and I'll look through the lens and no, it doesn't look good. Let's move on. You don't look good. You don't look cool or the situation isn't cool. So we'll take our time and I'll, I'm not good at rushing. Yeah. You know, I, I but I, when I've had done it on occasion, you know, when I shoot pictures of Noam Chomsky or these political figures or Cornell West people that inspire me, mm -hmm. you know, you, you don't have fall. You just have a minute or two. Yep. And then usually you have to crop it later or do something, you know, and I like to shoot full frame. I don't like to have to crop my work. I like to frame everything inside the camera. But yep. when you have those moments where you only have a few moments, you try and make it work. Otherwise, you do it later, you know, with uh, you know, yeah. cropping and whatever else you have to do to make the composition as precise as you like it to. But 
but, you know, with the Beastie Boys and with a lot of friends that I shot in Run DMC. I mean, if you look at that Together Forever book, yep. there's a lot of great shots. In that oh, book, amazing. Two groups, you know. And, um, and I mean, obviously, My Rules is my favorite book ever. And The Idealist is probably my second favorite book because it's all, you know, uh, you know, my art book. I got, I got it right here. You got man. The Idealist. Yeah, that's great. Right yeah, that's great. How'd you like that? I loved it, man. I was going to ask you about it because, like, you know, looking at a lot of your work, there's just a lot of ener- like angst, like you say, and energy and like this raw. And it was just really interesting to see like an other side of your work where it's like these very like landscapes and just very like, um, like, I don't know, relaxing is the right word, but it's just like, it's almost the polar opposite of like a lot of your rough stuff. Like it was cool to kind of see another side of your art. It was like, it's like you kind of in nature or some travels through Europe. And it was just kind of, it was an interesting contrast, I thought, looking at the work. Well, I, you know, I think that people should recognize it as beautiful compositions. And yep. there is punk rock in there, and there mm. is skateboarding in there, and there is hip hop in there. But they're more beautiful compositions than action-packed intensity, right? Yeah. So that book is a book of my aesthetic more than anything else. But my aesthetic is also very political, you mm-hmm. know? And, and there is a story being told on a lot of those pages that sometimes is very obvious. Yep. sometimes not as obvious but it is mostly a book of composition how one page will flow into another or the stories mm-hmm. will you know oppose each other on opposite pages um yeah yeah i guess like what was kind of your goal with that book the idealist i really enjoyed the, the like quotes from like cornell west and how he kind of viewed being an idealist and like i guess overall what was kind of your goal putting this book together and what about ian mckay yeah, you know, he's, got, he's got a great essay in there. Ian Savonius has a great essay in there. Ralph Nader gave me words for that book. Yeah. Um, the, the goal with that book is that I had already had Fuck You Heroes and Fuck You Too come out. And I wanted to make a book of, you know, my aesthetic. And people thought, you know, you can't really sell books, photo books, unless they're on one subject. Mm-hmm. You have to be very specific, you know, street shooting, skateboarding, you know, not that there were any skateboard books at that time. But, you know, you have to have it on one, you know, refrigerators. You have to be a refrigerator photographer yep. or you have to be, uh, you know, a, a, a nature photographer. Yep. I wanted, I called it the idealist because people thought I was way too idealistic to make a book of just beautiful photographs of a lot of things, not just one subject. Mm-hmm. So that was the first reason I called it the idealist because people said that I was way too idealistic to make a book of just beautiful photographs on varied subjects. Uh, politically, I am very idealistic most of the time. During this last four years, I question my own idealism a lot, quite frankly. Yeah. Um, But I think that as long as there's hope, which we have hope again now, um, you know, idealism is, is being an idealist is a way to live, you Mm -hmm. know, Um, to care about the world and to have a positive mental attitude and, and an ideal that Things could be better and yep. things could be beautiful. And I think that that's why I call the book The Idealist, besides having all these subjects just smashed into one book. And um, but it, it, it's it's the perspective of an idealist, quite mm-hmm. honestly. And, and, you know, and, and there's there's some ugly pictures in there and there's some sad pictures in there. Um, and there's a lot of but every picture in there is a beautiful picture. Yeah, no, I really enjoyed it. And uh you know, one thing I was really pumped to talk to you about, and, you know, everyone knows you from your skating and your punk rock photos and hip hop. 
But you have an interesting connection to Doc Ellis, a uh, legendary pitcher, MLB pitcher. Um, how did you kind of first meet him? This because I that that one kind of surprised me when I read about it. Yeah, that that story. Uh, you know, I mean, you guys should see the movie No No, a documentary yeah, that I helped out with. But um, you know, yeah, Doc was someone. I was a big baseball fan when I was a kid, and Roberto Clemente was my idol when I was a kid. And, um, and still to this day is an inspiring individual. I mean, Clemente is just one of the all time greats. And I was alive when, you know, I saw the 1971 World Series at home on, you know, with Kurt Gowdy reporting. And, you know, I was just nine years old when I, you know, when that happened. And I was eight years old when I started to like the Pirates. Um, maybe even a little, yeah, I think, I guess I was probably eight when I started like the Pirates in 1970. Yeah. And um, I just liked the Pirates probably because I, I don't know what attracted me to them, but I just liked them. <laughs> yeah. And probably because I was a pirate at Halloween. And I don't know. I mean, maybe it was even before I was eight that I liked the pirates. And I just liked the name and it was cool. And then I learned about the players, Clemente and Stargell and, and the lumber company. And they were just a badass group of time. Yeah. And I just loved them. And Clemente was just someone I idolized. And, you know, I've recently actually connected with his son and we've become friendly. Wow. Um, and I'm working on a project now to honor Roberto Clemente. That's amazing. Um, for Roberto Clemente Day. But um, I was at a game and just, uh, you know, I, I, as you guys know, you know, I'm loud and I'm opinionated. <laughs> and I was always that way my whole life. And I was at a game in the front row. I was probably, um, I'd have to say, 11 years old. And I was just screaming, you know, during before the game for autographs just yelling at the players and um doc ellis is looking at me he just shakes his head and he's looking at me he's like why are you yelling <laughs> you know because a lot of the players they're just practicing and they're just like ignoring people so i had to get yep. some attention mm -hmm. he struts on over he just says relax man i got you you know and so he gives me an autograph and we just start talking and, and I start talking, uh, you know, and I'm wearing a shirt. I'm actually wearing a shirt. My dad had taken us to the Hall of Fame earlier that summer or the summer before. Yep. This is at Shea Stadium in New York. And he sees me wearing my Willie Stargell shirt. I didn't get a Clemente shirt because he had passed away. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm a kid. You don't think of wearing a shirt. He, he wasn't. You know, you just didn't think of getting a Clemente shirt because he was, he passed. Yeah. You, know, you didn't realize it would be something to honor him. You just mm -hmm. didn't think like that yet. It was too soon after the fact. So I just had my Stargill shirt that was a 100% nylon black shirt with yellow letters, hand sewn. I got it at the Hall of Fame. It was the most expensive piece of clothing I ever had. It was probably like $22 or something, yeah. maybe $18. And you couldn't buy jerseys back then. They didn't sell them to the public team had the jerseys that was it oh wow you, it just they were handmade for the players and that was it you couldn't buy them you couldn't go and get replicas nothing the thing that i had the shirt i was wearing that looked nothing like the jersey was the closest thing you can get yeah. to having a pirate's jersey and it was my most prized possession honestly and so doc came over and he's talking to me and i asked him for his autograph then he starts pulling at my shirt like why are you wearing this shirt why are you wearing this corny shirt? <laughs> you should have like a, you know, uh, you should have a, a real Doc Ellis shirt. Like, what are you talking about? Like, how, what do you mean? Like, this is my favorite shirt. Why are you saying that? <laughs> I didn't use the word diss, but he was basically dissing my shirt because people didn't use that word yet. 
Yeah. Like, why are you dissing my shirt? What's going on? And and he starts harassing me over my Willie Stargell shirt. Who and he was friends with Stargell. They were all very good friends, you know. And Doc was just the nicest guy. And I don't. He just befriended me. He was talking. So he says, "Look, man." And what he, when he said the Doc Ellis shirt, I said, "I don't know where do I get one. I'll get, tell me where to get it. I'll get a Doc <laughs> Ellis shirt. I don't know what to do." I thought it'd be like a hand painted shirt, you know, yeah, like yeah. people used to airbrush shirts back then, and that was like a popular thing. And I even had a Big Daddy uh, Roth, you know, the hot rod painter designer T-shirt that was hand painted. I got at a car show, and I thought maybe he meant something like that. Yeah. And so I'm telling the long version of the story, and so then he um, said, "Look." You know, do you know where the press gate is? That's where, you, and I knew where the press gate was. I've been to a lot of games. My dad knew another baseball player, and we knew where the press gate was. And so he said, "Come there at so and so a time when I know I won't be pitching anymore today. I'll see. You know, come there. I'll see if I can find you one of those shirts or something like that. Whatever, whatever. You know, at second game, the doubleheader, the seventh inning, I go right where I'm supposed to meet him. He struts out with fucking platform shoes like this, yeah. <laughs> a red fishnet shirt, black silk pants. You know." pimping swag like he, you would be in 1973 you yeah. know what i'm saying just pimping completely <laughs> that's what and he comes out with a little brown paper bag people are yelling and the game's not over but people know that's where the players would exit the stadium yeah and players and it wasn't like high security like it is now they would there was a little security but they would go from there to their cars in the parking lot they had a special parking area yep and they would go and they would drive home yeah you know unless you were out of town player and then you would get on the bus and you'd leave from the fucking parking lot, you know? It wasn't so crazy like it is now. Celebrity culture, you know, people were into movie stars and stuff, but people were like human. Yeah. They weren't superhuman, you know? Baseball players had winter jobs. Yeah. You know, they didn't have, you know, the union wasn't that strong yet. And it's, you they know, weren't making anyway, yeah. the doc comes out with this paper bag. He comes strutting out. He comes, walks right to me, right straight to me. Everyone's screaming, yelling. He's come right to me, talks to me. He says, don't open this here because you will get jumped. <laughs> Wait till you get back to your seat. You have a little brown paper bag all folded up. And I go back to my seat. You know, I run back to my seat because I'm just a little kid in the stadium. And, you know, in New York back then, even at the stadium, it's, it's pretty sketchy. Yeah. You know, Shea Stadium. Um, and so I go back to my seat. And I'm with my dad. I open it up. And I open the bag. And I just closed it right back up. <laughs> fucking jersey was in the bag wow he gave me his jersey that's crazy we became friends he had my phone number when he would come to town they would call wow you know, you're and you're like only like 12 years old at this I'm like point. 12 years old and, you know <laughs> and he talked to my dad too because my dad was a yeah. big gambler and a sports fan and stuff like that and they would talk a little bit you know but he was mostly and you know we when i made the movie 40 years later the guys had just the guy the director told me he's heard these stories that doc had like families that he would be friendly with in every town yeah which and i guess i was the guy the kid in new york that he yeah. would just you know talk to maybe there was another one, but you know and if you have the first edition of his book which is one of the greatest sports books ever written it's called in the country of baseball hmm. written by a poet laureate donald hall so it's a really wonderfully written book and just about a badass if you buy the first edition you don't get the whole story because he just got signed to the Yankees when that book came out in 1976. But if you get the new edition, which came out 10 years later, and it's got a painting on the cover of a guy sitting in a field, um, that one has the whole story with the LSD and all that stuff. 
in the previous edition, they couldn't put that. They said he was drunk and they made up different stuff because just the time they couldn't tell yeah. the story. Yeah, he seemed like such an interesting guy. Like even back then, he was just kind of doing it. His... In that first edition, let me just tell you, there's a little photo section. Yep. And there's a picture in there where Doc is talking to the fans in LA because I was back in Los Angeles in the fall and we saw him. And I'm in the picture as a 12 year old in the book, if you look really closely. And I'm not looking at him, I'm not the focus of the picture, but I'm in the background of the photo there. Yeah. And they actually took photos of me and him on the field that day. Just, uh, uh, and I never got to see them and he couldn't, no one could find them or anything. He actually told me that he wanted to put one in the book later on, but he yeah. lost my number or something like that. Yeah. And um, that would have been amazing. But I hope those photos turn up one day, me on the field with Doc Ellis. Yep. In, but I am in the first edition. Just you can see me in the background there. It's yeah. pretty funny. And I think in, in your other book, you have a picture of you in the locker room with them or something. You're yes. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. Was... Al Oliver took the picture of me and Doc. I took my dad's camera. Wow. And it was out of focus and everything. It was a 35 millimeter camera. And Al Oliver took a picture. That was another time at Shea Stadium where he took me into the dugout before the game crazy and i saw a fight there the <laughs> racist players and stuff like that and just yeah we were i was just in the clubhouse and he i had to run across the field during the national anthem once to get back to my seat doc treated me real good and that was before skateboarding you know yeah. i was really into baseball he was mm -hmm. a very big inspiration for me he gave me great autographs he introduced me to all the players i met dave parker as a rookie john candelaria as a rookie you know uh you know, and I, and, but I think he also was nice to me because he knew my, my love of Clemente and that I was missing my idol and yeah. stuff like that, you know, and, and Clemente Jr., who I've been friends with recently, told me that uh, Clemente and Doc were really tight. And I yeah. think Clemente was Doc's first roommate, wow. you know, when he came up. And uh, yeah, he was, um, you know, yeah, he was good and, and, it, and it made a lasting impression. I'm a pirate fan to this day. And I, you know, People who play softball with me think I'm crazy. But I always got pirate gear on from head to toe. <laughs> Every time I go out to play softball, almost I'm always wearing black <laughs> my pirate shirt. And I've and over the years I became friends with some of the players. You know, just uh, you know, off and on I'd meet guys at the stadium. And but I, I I didn't follow it at all in the '90s or in the early in the 2000s. You know, the early 2000s at all. Yeah. But once my kid was born, I got back into it again and I coached Little League and I sponsored the team. If you guys go to my, uh, if you guys go to the, uh, have a, um, a Vimeo page. Okay. And there's a great video of my kid that I made put together just off the iPhone, you know, when I sponsored the team. I sponsored the team for a lot of years because I just wanted us to be the Pirates and I coached the team for a lot of years too. That's but when awesome. he got older, he didn't want me to coach anymore. But, uh, <laughs> But I still sponsored the team when we won the championship last year. Damn. And, uh, and it was really good. And I have Burning Flags Press on the back of the uniforms. <laughs> it's dope. You know, that's it's awesome. Really dope. And I was really proud of that. And that's all because of Clemente. I mean, I was thinking of just putting Clemente on the back of everyone's uniform, but I just did Burning Flags Press because it was so badass. Yeah. And, um, you know, but the Pirates were a great team then, and they had a, a lot of heart, and they were very, you know, socially minded. You know, they had the, they had the first all black fielded team ever and that was even done by accident but they were just you know they were just they, it's a, and then in this 1979 we are family was the slogan it's like i've always felt as though we were, they were a very family oriented team yeah and, you know i don't like jock baseball i don't i really don't i don't care if you could hit home runs out every time you're up to bat i like players who have heart yeah and integrity and have fun play together and, you know my team sucked this year i watched every single game and we lost we are winning. Our percentage was like 274. You won one out of five games or something. You know, it was, it was a nightmare. 
watching yep. him. It was really sad. But you know what? As long as they had heart, and I saw a lot of hope in a lot of players, and they weren't all big muscle jocks. Mm -hmm. You know, I like that team, man. I love the Pirates. And I'll yeah. go down. I'm going down with them, man. I don't yeah. care. That's Their awesome. owner, everyone talks shit about, whatever. Whatever. I like the Pirates. I'm a they, Pirate fan. They got and I'm have you been to my friends and to my sports team. And I don't I, like any other sports. I don't care about any team. I don't <laughs> watch any other shit. I'll watch the Super Bowl to do my taxes at the same time. I'll watch the NBA last playoff game. And, you know, in honor of my friend who passed, he loved yep. the Pirates. Yeah. Do you still got the Doc? Because of Clemente and because of Doc. You still got the Doc Ellis jersey he gave you? Of course I do. That's yeah. a, that's if amazing. You know, if you there's a page, there's a there's a there's a uh, Kickstarter page where they interview me about Doc Ellis. Yep. And the movie, and they talk because I was one of the executive producers on the or producers on the movie. And they interviewed me, and I think there's a picture of that up on there, mm -hmm. of, of my shirt, and it's you know I put it in a frame with the baseball cards and stuff like that. But um, but you know this in, in the current pirate lineup. I mean, I was very friendly with uh with Clint Hurdle, the old manager. I was sad when he got fired. He was a great, great guy. And my son and I became friendly with a uh, with a uh, um, Starling Marte, but he got traded. But our current pirates that we're friends with, Josh Bell. And uh, Joe Musgrove, I got him a skateboard, a Dogtown board. He was a skater. Wow. And, um, and of course, uh, Trevor Williams and me, we t I talked to him a lot. He's a punk rocker, you know. <laughs> he, he, I, because of COVID, I found out that he was a minor. He grew up on minor threat and the germs and black flag and stuff. And I connected with him on Instagram. Mm. And we would talk almost after every game. He, yeah. You know, Trevor Williams is a great guy. And I got him a Dogtown board. And, uh, you know, uh, when he, he wanted a board, to, you know, and, and those guys are all great. And Josh Bell is, uh, I'm so proud of him, man. He's so civic minded and about community. And he's just a great, great human being. And yeah. man, you know, I want him to do good. I want him to hit his home runs last year when he broke all those records last May, but he, he's a good person. And you know what? I like good people. Definitely. And if he was a good guy and he was on the team and he wasn't doing well, I would still love him because he's a great human being. And that's what I want to see. And I, I like that in sports. I don't like these big muscle jocks beating the shit out of the ball, mm -hmm. breaking their bat when they fucking did, you know, hit it, get an infield shot and stuff. Fuck, you know, those spoiled brats. I don't like spoiled brats in anything, but yeah. I like people who've got heart and care. And even guys on the opposing teams, if I see they got heart, I like them. If someone yeah. makes a good play, I like them. I just like people who can play a grit, like dudes that just run out every like ground ball, like run through first, and it's not like that shit. That's the shit I respect. They just got grit, you know. Oh hell yeah, yeah. You know, I remember a time when I hated Jake Arrieta. I fucking hated him. He was on the Cubs, and he was, you know, and he, and he was fucking up everyone in the league. Including the, Pirates. <laughs> the Pirates were good that year. The Pirates might have made it to the playoffs if it wasn't for him. And they were in a what do they call it? Uh, What's the one called right before the playoffs? The uh, oh, like the oh, like the ALCS or like the uh, before the, uh, World the Series? Uh, you know, uh, the wild card. They were in oh, the wild, wild card, card. yeah, yeah. Cubs. And and there was you know, and they were hitting each other. People were beat, hitting each other, and and then Jake Arrieta, and then there was a big fight for the Pirates, and then the Pirates pitcher, you know, hit Jake Arrieta because he was mm -hmm. hitting their players. Yeah, you know, and he just hit him in the ass, and and but Jake Arrieta, he. He took it like a man. He fucking, he went to first base and he took his punch. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I respected him for that. Oh, I really yeah. did. And that he was, a, and he was, a, they were, he was a badass man. He could pitch back then and he was good. And the fact that he took it and he didn't start the fight. The other players started the fight. He just laid back in the cut 
And, and I like those, I don't like to see violence, but I like to see people respect themselves and respect the, you know, yeah. and, and respect the team and, and it's love the team and their brothers on the team. And I, I've had a lot of fun with baseball and I, you know, oh, we got to get nine games in softball this year, you know, Adam Horvitz got me playing softball again. And, uh, you know, and, um, and, and I played in, in another pickup game too. And I got a lot of fun playing softball, man. That's awesome, man. Well, Sorry to go on that tangent. No, nah, I love baseball, man. I was excited to talk to you, but I didn't realize you had that connection. So it was a great story. Um, it goes but, deeper too. Oh, I'm sure. Now <laughs> I got all, and now that I'm connected again with guys, it's really fun. And during COVID, I started going a little wild on the computer on eBay, <laughs> collecting baseball cards. Again, you know? Oh, baseball card card collecting is like big in a ba- is back in a big way. Like it's more popular than ever. Yeah, it's well, they, I think it's they've kind of overdone it a little bit. I think you know, like I mean, they literally have like 20 cards. For yeah. each player every year now it's just like you can't you can collect everyone but it's very costly and it's just crazy and top tops did, did an interesting one this year where they collaborated with like different artists like mr cartoon did a couple and then like different artists collaborated with tops and they're like these like limited cards that come in like this like plastic case i forget what the series is called but there i saw some of them and they were really ugly i thought yeah. they were shit not yeah, there's a cu- there's a couple weird ones, but there was I saw a couple that were cool because they did some different. Well, Mr. Cartoons one was cool for the World Series. I thought that was dope. Yeah, I like that. I posted that on my Instagram story. You know, I like, uh, but uh, but but some of the other ones I saw were just crap. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was interesting. Oh, like I see it. I like it. I do it. Well, I guess to wrap up, man, like you've accomplished a lot and photographed so much. Like, I guess what's next for you? Like what's kind of got you inspired right now? And like, what are you hoping to, I don't know, work on? Did we talk about photography enough for your podcast? Yeah, man. Well, it's a photography. It's a life podcast, man. We'll talk about whatever. I just want to make sure you got what you had to do, man. No, it was great, man. I, I really appreciate talking to you, but I guess like what's next for you, man? Like what's kind of got anything? What's next? Got you? I'm just trying to survive in this crazy fucking economy of the world. I hear and you. And I have a little bit more hope now that we got rid, like we started off with a fascist yep. dictator. Yeah. Um, I don't shoot that many pictures. When I'm inspired, I will. I mostly work off my archive. Yeah. You know, the last book that I made, Together Forever. Yeah. Um, it's still out there. It's just trickling out. I think because of the timing and stuff, it's really weird that uh, not everyone's seen that book who even wants to see it. Yeah. You know, the Beastie Boys and Run DMC book, which is great. Mm-hmm. The Virals book, you know, I work on the books. You know, we got the Fugazi book and the Dogtown book got republished last year by Akashic. Yeah, I got that too. Those books came out. You know, I'm, I'm really proud of how those books came out. Mm-hmm. Great. Um, and. Um, my son just came back in the door for a second i shoot pictures of him more than anything else in the last 10 years that's good man about my skills but i really want i've been telling every interview every public appearance that i would make everything there's one subject that i want to shoot for two years now it's two years it is almost two years to the day since i first tried reaching out to get this portrait and you know what it is if you listen to my other interviews and i still haven't gotten to sit down and hang out i really want to shoot alexandria ocasio-cortez Oh, I want damn. to get a portrait of her, and I've had no one who's been able to hook it up. I've tried every route that I know. I've gone right straight to her campaign place and just, you know, emailed through the website damn. and had connections and non-connections. Shepard Ferry, this person, that person, a friend at Nancy Pelosi's office that I have. No one has gotten me. A, you know, she's high, high in demand, but she is an inspiration to me. And I know a lot of your listeners probably hate her and think she's stupid and young. And, 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 and hate her politics. I fucking love her politics. And she's yeah. inspiring to me. 
And I think she might have slipped and made a mistake here or there, but she's fucking brilliant and she's great. And our country needs more people like her. And we're all, getting- all gas, all gas, no brakes, man. I like it, dude. But, you know, I, I love her and I want to shoot a portrait of her. Yeah. I, I wanted to shoot a portrait of her two years ago, right when she first got elected for the first time. Okay. And because I like to get people before everyone else does, you know, yep. and that's part of my thing. And it's kind of, I don't like shooting people who've sat in front of a hundred photographers. Yeah, it's, you know, it's just, it's like, why they, they've already been photographed, but people are like, well, they need your perspective. Well, okay. But someone like her who has sat in front of a lot of photographers at this point, she just inspires me so much. I want to have a photograph for her. Hey man, it will happen. It'll happen, man. Never let up. Just keep keep after that, it. That, that's the inspiration. And, and I am happy. It is almost like a new dawn. Um, you know, uh, and, and again, he is a pretty conservative guy and he's going to work with those guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at least we have someone who could communicate and who's not a bold faced con man shithead doing the job. And that gives me a lot of hope yep. for everything in the world, for right everything. On. Really, right on. We were going down a really ugly path. We're a very important country in the world. Our culture is very important. And it was stimulated in ways, you know, because of that ugliness. But we need to calm down. We need to feed people. We need to care about people. We need to take care of people, right? And, you know, and care about each other and not be so fucking hateful towards each other. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, maybe I am an idealist still. Maybe it's coming. It's it's still there. You know, because you know, when since you know that that's just a way to phrase it. You know, and um, I just you know, all my work, man, it's all about caring about people and trying to make people move forward. People might think, oh, he's trying to politicize the skateboard or you know, this and that. And just like they're just fucking good pictures. Fuck you, Glenn. Shut up. I hear that. Yeah. Fuck you. <laughs> Fuck you. I made it. I know where I made it. If you want to look at it and get what you want to get out of it, that's fine. But let me tell you something. If you're enjoying my work, you're enjoying the work of a very, very left-wing person who yeah. really fucking cares about people, fucking hates fucking dictators, hates fascism, fucking applauds anti-fascists, punching fascists in the face, even though I'm against violence. Those people who are preaching hate deserve to be knocked down. Those people who are greedy need to be fucking brought down the side human care about other people we are all in this together i have been vegan for 30 years because i care about the planet i'm not i didn't grow up a fucking hippie i mm-hmm. stopped eating animals because it's good for the planet okay yep. i it has benefited me i'm 58 years old you know most people say i don't look 58 whatever i don't care about that i care about the planet the animals, that, that's a nice side benefit. We don't have to kill and torture and destroy these animals' lives. They're bred only to be eaten. It's disgusting. Yep. The main thing is it's for the environment. It's because we care about the planet. We don't want to destroy the planet. We want it to be here for generations and generations. Eventually, humans will be extinct from this planet. Eventually. Hopefully, it'll be so far in the future that no one we know will have any contact with it. But while I'm here, I'm trying to inspire people to do good things for the most people possible. Not just for your little clan and your own little family. Yeah. Good for everybody, man. Yeah. Let's, let's try and do some good. And, and I understand we have to survive. People are a little selfish sometimes. We're scared. You know, we want to care about our families. I get that. And that's okay to a degree. But the big picture has to be for everybody. 
come on, let's just do it. And that's what all my pictures are about. And it is, if you can't connect the skateboarding to that message, then you don't know what skateboarding was about back then. It was about being an individual, but also having a crew of people around you and caring about other people and pushing radical ideas to make the world a better place. When you're a skater and you're 15, you're not thinking about that so much, but you're making You're pushing the limits of how you're pushing how people think about other people and think about making the world a better place. Well, bam, Glenn, I think that's a good place to end it, man. I can't thank you enough for taking the time to do this, dude. And uh, I, I, well, I hope your uh, listeners enjoy it. I hope that they get something out of it. Definitely. And, uh, you know, and that people don't give up and they keep fighting the good fight. That's right, man. And fuck you if you're fighting a selfish fight. Fuck that's, you. That's I hope right. You fall on your own fucking face if you're a selfish <laughs> asshole, okay? All right, Glenn. I appreciate it, man. You have a good rest of your day, all right? Take care, man. Good to meet you. Take care, Alex. Thank you. Bye. So there you have it. That was the Glenny Friedman interview. I just want to thank Glenn so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. It's a real pleasure talking to him about everything he's kind of worked on over the course of his career. Uh, Just an incredible photographer who has documented so much uh, legendary stuff within skateboarding and hip-hop and punk rock and so much more. Um, Can't thank him enough. Uh, definitely go check out Glenn's website, uh, burningflags.com, or his Instagram, at Glenn E. Friedman. Um, and definitely go pick up one of his books. Um, I, I picked up a couple. I got the uh, My Rules, which is just kind of a uh, overall uh, cohesive body of work that kind of shows you some of his skateboarding and hip-hop and punk rock and so much more. Just an incredible book. Definitely go check that out, as well as The Idealist, which a little little different work kind of shows you some of Glenn's like landscape and more still life type of photography as well as some of the skateboarding too but awesome books so definitely go pick up one of those and as always i'll be having weekly podcasts every monday on apple podcasts spotify as well as the photo banter youtube page so so definitely go give that uh, a follow and check that out and as, as always thanks so much for listening and take care